God's word says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is and do not get drunk with wine for that is debauchery, but be filled with the spirit addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Well, some of you may have heard of Tom Rainer. He was a pastor and now a church leader, and on his website he posted 25 silly things churches have fought over and sometimes split over. I'm not going to share all 25, but three that made me chuckle in a sad sort of way was one church in which there were, was a business meeting in which arguments broke out on whether the church should purchase a weed eater or not. took two meetings to resolve that important, though wacky, conflict. Two different churches reported a fight over the type of coffee. In one of the churches, they moved from Folgers to a stronger Starbucks blend. In the other church, they simply moved to a stronger blend. Members left the church in the latter example. Some church members left the church of another one because one church member hid the vacuum cleaner from them. It resulted in a major fight and split. Well, this morning we're not going to talk about weed eaters or vacuum locations, or coffee blends, though that might be very important to some of you. Rather, we're going to look at two topics at which Christians throughout time have disagreed. First, we're going to look at alcohol, and second, we're going to look at what does it mean and who is filled with God's Spirit. When we come to issues like this, I've seen three typical responses. The first, there's the group of loving peacemakers, and I purposefully put that in quotes, because I don't think this approach is either loving or peacemaking, but it's people who want to seek to avoid any and all debate or sometimes discussion on these issues in order to maintain peace. They may say, even say things like, look, these topics, doctrine, doctrine divides, but what we need is love. Love will unite us. And sometimes they'll even say, well, look, there's no point talking about this. Christians have argued over these topics for centuries. We, we just can't even know. Look, I'm, ag I'm agnostic on this issue. And yet, ironically, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, when Paul begins his discussion on the Spirit of God and on spiritual gifts, he says, now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. Well, that word uninformed comes from the Greek word agnoin, from which we get the word agnostic. Paul specifically says, I don't want you to be agnostic or say, I can't know about this. Rather, he wants us to know. So, though Christians have disagreed on these issues, sometimes for centuries, that doesn't mean we shouldn't study it. However, there are issues in which there are a variety of opinions, and we should come to firm conclusions. Consider Romans 14.5, in which Paul is talking about Christians wanting to honor different days of the week, and he says, one esteems one day, and the other another. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. He didn't say, look, it's a matter of days. It doesn't matter, so don't even worry about it. Rather, he's saying, look, you should all be convinced of what you think. And if we should be convinced on something like that, which day of the week we're going to honor, 
Well, then we should definitely be convinced on even secondary matters, and specifically primary ones. I use those terms. A secondary matter is something that's not essential to be saved. A primary matter is something that you must believe to be a Christian. For example, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So we can't just say, well, look, people throughout the world have had many views on that. You know, we're just going to kind of not give an answer. No, we have to say, this is the truth, and we're going to stand on it. And that's not just Christians who have convictions that we need to stand on. If you go to the local PETA association, People for Eating Tasty Animals, I'm sure they're not going to be fine with members in their group owning butcher shops. They're going to say, no, you can't be part of PETA and do that. And yet, while there's loving peacemakers, often in response to that, the other wrong response is the truth-telling peacebreakers. I just said, look, we should study these things. We should reach conclusions. Yet, we should also recognize on some of these secondary matters, yes, Christians have disagreed for centuries. They're not essential for salvation. And yet, sadly, some Christians get so focused on being right and speaking truth that they are willing to break relationships. They get heated and angry. So again, yes, if we're talking about something essential, we should say, yes, you have to believe that God is real. You, to be a member of our church, have to believe that. We will not allow you to join without believing that. However, if we're talking about whether you should drink alcohol or not, or spiritual gifts, we can say, well, you don't agree, but as long as you're not going to cause a disturbance in the church, you're welcome to be here. And often, these truth-tellers don't lack any charity on these issues. It's not just public statement, but they scorn and laugh at and mock those who disagree. And not only do they believe they're right, they feel they're morally superior to you because you hold that clearly unbiblical view. And so often these fake peacemakers, the peace-loving peacemakers, the truth-tellers, they just go back and forth. The Loving peacemakers see these people who get angry and red, and they oh, look, we've got to stop having these discussions. And the others go, look, they will never take a stand, and they go back and forth. But the Bible presents for us a third option, which I hope to show this morning. And that is that we study, we reach conclusions, even on these issues that are not agreed upon by everyone, but we do so with love and respect. We don't say, well, we're not going to talk about this, nor... Do we become arrogant and dogmatic? But rather, as Ephesians 4.15 says, as we looked at a few weeks ago, months ago, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way who is the head into Christ. And yet, why are we even talking about this? I mean, aren't there really important matters? These are pretty secondary issues. Well, yes, these are not the most important topics that we could discuss. And yet, the Holy Spirit inspired all of God's word, and it's all profitable for teaching and training and correction and righteousness. And Jesus told his disciples to go into all the world, making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. So since this is in God's word, and it's the next passage we're looking at, then this is something that we should discuss. Just one more brief reminder before we dive into it. Remember, this section is all about how we should walk. And he's given three sets of statements. 
first a negative and then a positive. So verse 15, don't walk as an unwise person, but a wise person in regard to your time. Verse 17, don't walk as a foolish person, but as a wise one, knowing what God's will is. And here, verse 18, don't walk getting drunk with wine, but walk by being filled with God's Spirit. So, it's pretty clear. This morning we're going to look at, don't be filled with wine, but then positively be filled with God's Spirit. Now, if you have not read the Bible, as you're going through this letter, you might think, what in the world did he bring wine up for? Like, he's talking about all these important things, then seemingly out of the blue he just says, don't be filled with wine. Why is he saying this? Well, he does for two reasons. First, because his commands clearly speak against some cultural sins of the church of Ephesus. And second, as we'll see in the second select section, sorry, being filled with wine stands in contrast to what we should be filled with, and that is God's spirit. Well, in regards to their culture, the Ephesians were known for their worship of Diana, or Artemis, her name's in uh, for the Roman or Greek cultures. And her temple there in Ephesus was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. But along with their worship of her, they also worship a god called Bacchus, or to the Greeks, the god Dionysus. Bacchus was the god of agriculture and wine, and worship to him involved drunken parties that led to debauchery. Paul, in fact, calls the actions that flow from Ephesian drunkenness. He even says it here, verse 18, don't be drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. Thus, while we'll see the Bible condemns drunkenness for any reason, what Paul's specifically referring to here is not a depressed person sitting in a dark room drinking themselves drunk. This is more of a wild fraternity party. But worse than that, this is their worship. This is how they think they are honoring God to get drunk and then lead to sexual sin. And we know not just from the culture, but the word that's used for debauchery is the same word used for the prodigal son's behavior. It says, he went and lived riotous living. Thus, the negative command is specifically speaking to many things that the Ephesian believers had probably been part of in their past. And he's telling them, look, no longer take part of the drunken, orgy-filled worship to Bacchus. Rather, as we'll see, be filled with God's Spirit that leads to worshiping Him in songs, in giving thanks to God, and living in submission to other believers. Yet it's not just here, in this cultural context. The Bible throughout condemns drunkenness, this is not only commanded, we see it through illustrations. The book of Genesis, you may remember after the flood, Noah then builds or plants a vineyard, and from it he gets drunk, and his son shames him. Or a couple chapters later, Lot's daughters get him drunk so that they can have children through him. Similarly to Proverbs 10.19, which says, when words are many, transgression is not lacking. So I think we could say that when alcohol is plenty, transgression is not lacking. Thus in Job 1.5, when Job's children have feasts and drinks, it then says that afterwards he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned. I want us to flip to two places in Proverbs. So flip 
to Proverbs chapter 20, and then we'll look at Proverbs 23 to see some of these warnings that the Bible gives about alcohol. Proverbs chapter 20, we'll look at verse 1, and then we'll look at Proverbs 23, a little bit of a longer section. So the book of Proverbs, right after Psalms, Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1 says, Wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Flip over three chapters, Proverbs chapter 23, verses 29 through 35. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who is complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? And that it answers, those who tarry long over wine, those who go to try mixed wine, do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart utter perverse things. You'll be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea, like one who lies on the top of a mast. They struck me, you will say, but I was not hurt. They beat me, but I did not feel it. When shall I awake? I must have another drink. And sadly, we probably have all known, or hopefully not, but maybe been. People like that. As soon as the party's over, the next question is, when are we going to do it all over again? In the New Testament, in Galatians chapter 5, 1 Corinthians 6, it lists a group of lifestyles that people live in. And then at the end of them, it says, and these will not inherit the kingdom of God. And in both lists is included drunkenness. Now, the point is not that a Christian will never stumble, that a Christian will never get drunk. We all sin. It's that an unrepentant lifestyle. That's what those passages are talking about. Including drunkenness reveals a heart that truly doesn't know Jesus as Savior and Lord. And it's not just Ephesus or in the Old Testament that shows the folly of drunkenness, for it's a major problem in the United States. You may remember back three years, the onset of COVID, when they were restricting everything to essential businesses. There were only seven types in town, and one of them was the liquor stores, was one of seven essential things we need to live. Why was it essential? Well, because the doctors warned, if we stop the alcohol, some people will have such a reaction in their body that we will fill the emergency room with these people. I mean, really, in our city, we have so many people that can't drink that we're going to overflow our hospital. That's a major problem. You know, in the U.S., there are roughly 141,000 deaths every year due to alcohol. And the unintended consequences of excessive alcohol use are $249 billion. We have a problem with alcohol. And tragically, many houses and people know the destructive nature of alcohol on themselves or loved ones, and sadly how it often leads to abuse and poverty. So, many people, due to personal history, due to the clear examples, the commands, the warnings of Scripture, many have said, look, I'm never going to drink alcohol. And 
If that's a position you've taken, then great. There's nothing wrong with that. But sadly, many then take another step and they say, and drinking alcohol is a sin. Now, at that point, we need to pause and say that's a little bit like saying money is evil. Because 1 Timothy 6.10 says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. But the verse didn't say money was evil. It said the love of money is. Money can be a blessing as long as you see it as a good and not God. In fact, like possessions, God himself blesses people with wine. And that would be a rather odd blessing if wine was a sin. Let me give an example. The book of Deuteronomy. You may have read it and you realize there's back and forth God talking to Israel saying, look, if you sin, you're going to be cursed. If you obey, you're going to be blessed. And Deuteronomy 11 verse 14 says, for a blessing, he will give the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the latter rain, that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil. God is going to bless Israel by their obedience by giving them wine. Or flip over one book, if you're still in Proverbs, to Psalm 100, verse 4. Psalm 104, verses 14 through 15. Psalm 104, 14 and 15. That reads, that should not be Psalm 104. I got some reference up here. I'll get it to you later. Because Psalm 104 verse 14 is not what I was looking for. But this verse says, You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for men to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man. So some verse in the Bible that I will look up for you talks about God gives wine. Why? To gladden the heart of man. In fact, you know, probably John 2. Jesus was at a wedding and when they ran out of wine, he didn't say, well, good. I'm glad that stuff's out of here. He made more wine. And he made good wine, it says. And the host comes and basically says, well, look, why'd you save the best for last? And he's talking about how wine could lead to drunkenness, which I think is a little bit important because sometimes well-meaning Christians will say, well, yes, everything Pastor Jeremy said is true, but you need to realize, they would argue, that at this time, the wine did not have as much alcohol. And you had to have wine because you couldn't keep the water pure. Well, if that's true, and Jesus can do miracles, why didn't he just make really good water. He can do it. Why would he make something that is always a sin when he's doing a miracle? So I believe, and I know Christians don't always agree, I believe the Bible gives both serious warnings about wine and alcohol and also tells us of its goodness as a gift from God. So to honor God, we have to be wise. For some of us, it might be wise to say, I'm never going to drink. For others of us, it might be wise to say, at times, I'm going to drink. And we should consider both. In fact, at times, in the Bible, people are told, do not drink. When the priests were to serve in the tabernacle, they are told not to drink. Proverbs 31, it tells the kings and rulers that while they are ruling in their official capacity, they should not drink. And sometimes, we need to choose not to drink out of love for those around us. Proverbs 4, sorry, Romans 14, 21 says, 
It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Paul also has an extended section on this in 1 Corinthians 8-10, through 10, which Keith will be covering in Sunday school. And the issue that Paul is raising is that if eating certain food or drinking a certain thing is going to cause another brother and sister in Christ to sin, then out of love, just going to give it up. Now, it takes a lot of wisdom to know, is my drinking this going to cause them to sin? Or perhaps my drinking this in a wise, good way would be an example to them. So there's no hard and fast rule. You should drink now, you shouldn't. Rather, this is a point of wisdom. And so in that, as Paul is exhorting us, consider others more important to yourself. And really, this whole topic shouldn't be limited to alcohol, for we should avoid any substance that will control your body when you should be in control. And I have that last clause, when you should be in control, purposefully. Flip over to Proverbs chapter 31, verse 6, because though you at first thought might think, well, of course you should always be in control of your body, there are a couple times you don't want to. When the doctor is going to cut you in a surgery... You don't want control of your body. You want your body completely taken over so that you don't flinch and then have them cut you deeper. But to do that, they give you medicine. And you want them to do that. Or Proverbs 31 verse 6 says, Give strong drink to the one who is perishing and wine to those in bitter distress. When you're in the ER with multiple broken bones... You want the medication that does not make you feel it. There are times when you don't want to feel every part of your body. And so there are times, like that NyQuil sometimes, when you want to not feel everything. And those are not abusing alcohol. That is God's intended purpose at times. Again, we need wisdom. But as we said earlier, this is not as we're going through Ephesians, Paul randomly bringing out, up alcohol, he's saying, look, you don't want your life controlled by a substance. Rather, you want your life controlled by the Spirit of God. And so that's our second point, be filled with the Spirit. Flip over, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. So if you flip back to the New Testament, you'll see the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John then Acts, Romans, and then the two books of the Corinthians were in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 3. There in 1 Corinthians 12, beginning in verse 1, it says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Here in the third verse, Paul states two things negatively, sorry, two things first negatively and then positively about the Spirit of God. First, negatively, no one who has God's Spirit will ever say Jesus is accursed. And what that means is, accursed is someone who is going to be destroyed by God and with no hope of redemption. And yet, no one who is a true believer thinks that because we know God did redeem His Son and that He does love Him. 
He then says it positively in verse 3 of chapter 12. No one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. The point is not that someone could never just say the words Jesus is Lord and be saved, as though we could like trick someone, hey, read this sheet of paper and they say Jesus is Lord. Oh wait, you're saved because you said Jesus is Lord. The point is that they don't genuinely say and believe that Jesus is Lord. You know, Jesus would even say, some people say, Lord, Lord, when they don't actually know him. You know, when we say Lord, we mean master. And for someone truly to believe Jesus is Lord and to truly submit their life to him, that takes a work of the Spirit of God in their life. You know, to be saved is not just to give mental assent to some facts. I'm a sinner. Jesus was God's son, which you should assent to those. It's also to say, and I yield my life. I yield control to God. He is now my Lord and master. And here Paul is saying, if someone does that, that is evidence that the spirit of God is in their life. In other words, and this is very important, the New Testament clearly teaches that every believer has the Spirit of God. There is no Christian who does not have the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is not for the elite, those with connections to the top. Rather, every single believer is given the Spirit himself. Thus, while we should be charitable and loving to those who disagree, I think we should strongly disagree with those who say there's really two stages to your Christian development. First, you need to be saved, but then later you're going to need a second blessing in your life in which the Holy Spirit comes into your life in a dramatic way. Yes, I hope we all have stages of development. We can look at times where, you know, I was a Christian, but then five years later I really grew, I really grew. And then after that there's another season where I just grew like crazy. Yes, we should all want that. But sadly there's this teaching amongst Christians that you're saved and then later you need this second blessing of the Spirit. Rather, everyone who is saved has the Spirit. But some of you might say, or some of our Christian friends who disagree with my, me might say, but that's not what the New Testament shows. Because there are times in the book of Acts when the Spirit of God is given after someone's conversion. And that retort is well-founded, for in fact, there are examples in Acts of this happening. However, why did that happen? And was that the norm for all time, or was that something unique for then? Well, to find out, let's go look and see what it says. So turn to the book of Acts, and looking through Acts will really take up most of the rest of our time this morning. Flip to the book of Acts, chapter 1. So Acts chapter 1, this is after Jesus died, and he rose again, and he was with his disciples for 40 days. He then told them to remain in Jerusalem, and that he would ascend, told them when he ascended, look at verse 8, Romans, sorry, Acts chapter 1 verse 8, he told them, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of of the earth. Thus, while we are told that they were to wait in Jerusalem, God's plan was for them eventually to go and spread the good news, the gospel, throughout the earth, radiating from Jerusalem. Now, earlier Keith read for us Acts chapter 2, but look specifically Acts chapter 2, 
verses 6 through 8. This is when the Holy Spirit came upon them at Pentecost, and it says, And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language? Now, notice here that the miracle is not that they were able to hear in their own language, but rather that people were able to speak a foreign language in which they'd never studied. How is it that each of us hear each of us in his own native language, they say? Now, I don't want to get too bogged down on whether speaking in tongues is still active today. There's much we could say, and you probably have friends, family members, who still believe that's active. The main thing I'd want to convey is, if it is still active today, God's word instructs us in how we should do that. 1 Corinthians 14, 27 through 28 says, If anyone speaks in the tongue, this is in a church service, let there be only one or two at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each one of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and God. Now my point is not to dive into all that, but just to say you can't interpret something that's not a real language. And so again, we see that what was given to these people in Acts 2 was not some angelic prayer language, but a language in which they never studied before. But now we need to turn to two other passages in Acts because we're going to see two examples in which people who were already saved then after their conversion, were given the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 8, 14 through 17 says, Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. So, I mean, this appears quite contradictory to my statement that every believer has the Spirit of God. For clearly here, these Samaritan believers did not have the Spirit of God. The Spirit was given after their initial faith, and it was later received by prayer by the apostles. Yet, while this is clearly different than what I stated I believe this was intentionally the case for historical and cultural reasons. You may remember John 4, 9 that says, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Here in Acts 8, these are Samaritan believers. And how much did they hate each other? Well, enough that when one Samaritan village rejected Jesus, Jesus' own disciples in Luke 9 say, should we call down fire from heaven to consume them? I mean, these were not people that they got along with. Samaritans were considered half-breeds because they were half-Jewish and half-Gentile. Not, not only were they not full Jewish, but they also held the different religious views. They only considered the first five books of the Old Testament to be from God. They worshipped on Mount Gerizim, not Jerusalem. Along with these racial and theological tensions, there were acts of hostility between them. The Jews destroyed the Samaritan temple on Mount Gerizim in 128 BC, about 150 years before Jesus' 
ministry. Then 35 years before Jesus came, the Samaritans broke into the Jewish temple and spread bones throughout the temple, desecrating it. So the Jews, by the time Jesus was there, they wouldn't even share a drink with Samaritans. A pious Jew would take an extra day on his journey just so he could avoid every single Samaritan town. Now Jesus has come, and the question is, are Samaritans and Jews going to be in the same church? Well, here, the Spirit of God comes upon the Samaritans. And notice what happens. It's not just these Samaritans, but look down at Acts 8.25, same chapter, verse 25. Now, when they had testified, the disciples, and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. When they see the Samaritans receive the Spirit of God, just like they did, they come to the conclusion God wants these people to be part of his body. No longer do they say, we're no longer going to have dealings with them. No longer do they avoid many villages. They purposefully go to many villages. So I believe at this unique point in time, God temporarily held the Spirit from them because he wanted to show that the gospel was for the Samaritans too. Remember Jesus' command. You're going to begin in Jerusalem, go to Judea and Samaria, and then all the ends of the earth. And we'll see that part next. Flip over to Acts chapter 10. This will be our last passage. Acts 10 and 11. Because here in Acts 10 and 11, it's a story all about a man named Cornelius. He was a Roman centurion. And it says he feared God. And we're not going to read it all, but... Peter had visions to go visit Cornelius, and Cornelius had visions to send for Peter, and Peter came to this Gentile. But look at Acts 10, 28, because Peter said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So it's a similar issue to the Samaritans. Jews don't go and hang out with these people. But then look down at Acts 10, 44 through 47. While Peter was still saying these things, talking to them about Jesus, his death, resurrection, what it all meant, while he's saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? So this story reveals that the hostilities between Jew and Gentile came to an end because of Jesus. And Peter and the others knew this. Why? Because they received the Spirit and they knew they received the Spirit because they spoke in tongues. And notice though, it wasn't just any speaking in tongues. He says, just as we have. Just as we were able to speak other languages without studying it, so were they. And so, this unfolding of the Holy Spirit, first to the Samaritans, and now to the Gentiles, was essential for the Jewish community to realize that God wanted people from all parts of the earth from every tribe, tongue, and nation to be his people. 
And I say this because notice actually what happens next. Acts chapter 11, look at verse 2. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him. You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them? Now they'd heard the same words from Jesus. They'd heard that the gospel was for all the earth. And yet they still don't believe that it's really for Gentiles. But then look down at verse 15. Because Peter recounts what had happened and it then says, verse 15, As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning, i.e. like at Pentecost. And I remember the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift, the gift of the Spirit, made clear by speaking in tongues, to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? Then look at how these people, the people who are just saying, you shouldn't have gone and eaten with them. Look at what they say in verse 18. When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. So there are so many other factors we could consider about the nature of spiritual gifts today. We could even look at another interesting story in Acts 19. But I've hopefully conveyed that what is going on in Acts is that the giving of the Spirit is done after conversion for a unique time in God's redeeming of the world. Why was it done uniquely? Well, first, it was showing the fulfillment of Jesus' own words that the gospel was going to begin in Jerusalem. Then it was going to go to Judea and Samaria and then the ends of the earth, even to Gentiles like Cornelius. And also, this was the authentication that God did truly love. God did truly want to save people, even like Samaritans, even like Gentiles. So, though I don't think the book of Acts is giving us prescriptions. I don't think it's giving us normal experiences for all believers for all times. Rather, these are descriptions and giving unique experiences for some. Thus, when Ephesians 5.19, yes, we're still in Ephesians, when it says, be filled with the Spirit, that command is not to get a so-called second blessing in which you speak in tongues. It's not saying, look, you can be saved, but later in your life you need some dramatic experience to fully know God. Rather, remember the context. It's saying, look, Ephesians, you remember your old life. You remember how you went and you worshipped Bacchus, how you loved those wine festivals, how you'd get drunk, and you remember all those debauched things you did. But you're now saved. You're now a new person. Don't be filled with that. Be filled with the Spirit of God so that you'll, and then we'll find out next week, sing God's Word to one another. So that you will give thanks. So that you'll submit yourselves to one another. You know, being filled with God's Spirit is not losing control of yourself. Rather, it's having a Spirit that leads to power, love, and self-control. God's Spirit influences us to act in a way that doesn't dehumanize us, acting like any animal on its base instincts. Rather, when we're influenced and led by God's Spirit, He transforms us into loving people who more and more resemble God's image to those around us. Let's pray. Lord, we've looked at many, many topics this morning. Lord, many people may disagree. 
So Lord, would your word guide us? Would each of us be fully convinced in our own mind? And would we all call you Lord? That we would know that the most important thing is knowing you and the joy that comes from being saved by you. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen.